Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Justice Magic, binaural production engineer Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, Monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And monthly co-host, Kat Baldwin, author of The Forgiveness Workshop. If you are interested in contributing to the show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Sarah Payton. And she is the author of a few books, one of them which is Your Resonant Self, Guided Meditations and Exercises to Engage Your Brain's Capacity for Healing. Thank you for coming on, Sarah. Oh, thank you for having me. So one of the topics that I cover often on my podcast is that human beings have a lot more abilities than we are currently using and your book looks like it sort of ties into tapping into some of those abilities Mm -hmm. um what brought you into this field and you know like what kind of research are you doing well what brought me into the field was uh the discovery that the brain is changeable i grew up in the 1960s and 1970s and the Word from science was you lived through those first three years and boom, everything was set in stone. There's no way to heal. There's no way to change. You have to live with whatever constellation of depression, anxiety, (laughs) download from past generations, from your parents, from their ability to be present with you as an infant. And I was just like, oh, my goodness, what a, you know, sort of like a walking death sentence to come out of early childhood and have no way to do anything different. And then I stumbled across this funny world of nonviolent communication and went to see Marshall Rosenberg, who was the fellow who created nonviolent communication. And I had this experience of a, a really difficult issue. I, I Speaking of growing up, I was I, we had a foster son and I couldn't hug him. And I wanted to hug him, but I would, my body would just stop. I was like, what the heck? You know, and nothing was changing it. Therapy wasn't changing it. Nothing was changing it. And, um, and I had this change happen. Just, it was really simple, really. It was a result of people saying, you know, I wonder, it was like this, there was a combination of kindness and warmth and warm curiosity. And they were like, I wonder if you're, if you're scared and if you really want, you know, everybody to be safe and questions like that. And, as they asked these wonderful, open-ended, sweet questions that had a generosity in their heart, um, I had this spontaneous memory of reaching out to hug my mother when I was a really little girl and feeling her body recoil. And this kind of decision that I made when I was tiny, never to hug anybody again, you know? And here I was, I really wanted to give my little foster son some good hugs, and my body was like, don't hug anybody, you'll hurt them. Because that's what you interpret when your mom recoils from you when you're little. You interpret that there's, you're hurting her. 
So, um, so I was so, so stunned that such a difficult thing had changed. I went home from that workshop and I could hug my son and I was like, what the heck happened? <laughs> Are our brains capable of more than I thought they were? And that started this whole journey of learning about the way that we can heal each other from emotional trauma. It's quite simple. It's quite straightforward. And people all over the world are healed. It's not easy, <laughs> but it's simple and straightforward. Hmm. So in this process, um, are we just talking about um, learning new behaviors? Um, does it work by looking back in the past and recognizing you know, those things that created it? Or are we just simply talking about um, rerouting our neural pathways to go a different route? A combination of all of them. There's a, it's less about learning new behaviors, though, than it's about having an emotional aha. And emotional ahas are one of the wonderful things that brains do. When you have an aha experience, there's a gamma wave that goes through your whole brain and reorganizes your neurons in accordance with the new information. I'm sure you've had this happen, like moments of insight, moments of like connecting to something greater, moments of a sense of, yes, there's much more capacity here than I had thought there was. And, and those moments reorganize everything. So, those, so that's not a learning of a new behavior. That's like having a transformative experience which I think is one of the things that humans love is transformative experiences. And, and a sense, you know, catching mm -hmm. that glimpse that you're offering listeners of something that, that, that the limitations that we thought were there are not there. Hmm. So are we talking, you know, brain chemistry or are we talking something outside of ourselves, something from the spiritual realm that, mm -hmm. that just hits us and moves everything around in our brain. Like I have had those experiences where, you know, I mean, I mean, there's days where I've I've had days where I woke up and I felt like a completely different person, you know, and it never went back to being that old person. Um, and to me personally, like to me, I feel like it has to be more than just a chemical change. I, I don't really see it so much as a chemical change. I mean, the chemicals change. <laughs> when your brain changes, you know, the, chemical, the way the chemicals are operating to make you run change. But I think that's just a secondary experience. The primary experience, I think, is of, um, you know, there, there's something enormously sweet about... Uh, being accompanied and we can be accompanied by each other we can learn to accompany ourselves and then gradually reach out to be accompanied by each other as our level of trauma with humans decreases and then we can also be accompanied by spirit we can be accompanied by a sense of something greater than self or a, a, a kind of even more esoteric sense of being accompanied there are, there are so many ways that people have a sense of other life, other spirit in the universe, that, 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 that we can be open to, to all of those things changing us. Mm. But the way that my work focuses is it focuses specifically on um, <clears throat> the way that language opens us to new experience and the way that language 
can close us to new experience. So advice, for example, always closes brains, <laughs> especially unsolicited advice. Makes brains go... And, um, and warmth, open-ended questions, wonderings, uh, and a, a sense of what kind of language. Okay, so we have these two hemispheres. We have a left hemisphere that's got a certain structure, and we've got the right hemisphere that's got a certain structure. They both do all the same things all the time. They're both always working. So it's not like some people are just left-brained and some people are just right-brained. But we do look through each side and see the world differently. If we look through the left hemisphere, we see the world as mechanical. And like we, if we do this, we'll get this money and we'll invest here and, um, and we'll, uh, we'll work for this kind of political change and these things will happen and that, 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 that. Like action, response, action, response. And if we look at the world through the right hemisphere lens and we see so much that's, we, we become deeply in touch with our intuition. We start to really tap into, uh, you know, whatever our deep intuition tells us. And each person has a different kind of deep intuition. And it's, it's shaped by our experiences. So if we have experiences of warmth and of, um, of relationality and of existing for the people who are in our world, then then our intuition deepens. And if we have experiences um, with other kinds of entities or spirit, or if we have a different kind of experience with the divine, our right hemisphere is open to that. Our right hemisphere says, yes, I am willing to be changed. Come and get me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. You know, it, it's almost like to me, um, you know, Growing up as a kid, obviously, I mean, well, pretty much everything we learned about the brain was wrong as a kid. You know, to me, you know, back then I was taught that, like, it was basically a storage unit for information and, mm -hmm. and, and a processor for reasoning. Now, yeah. like, to me now, and I, and I think with, with more research, it's a lot more difficult, one, to identify where memories are stored. You know, it doesn't seem like they're just stored in the brain. They're stored throughout maybe the entire body or maybe even outside the body. And the other part, the creative part of the brain, to me, seems like is acting more as a receiver of information, you know, from other people, from from other realms and things like that. Um, and when, you, when the brain is looked at from that perspective, it makes... Um, Current psychology, you know, I don't know, a little obsolete, I think, to me. Um, you know, and you're talking about language. And that's the one thing that the brain does master is language. Um, so what type of language um, works best, you know, when trying to heal, um, you know, trauma with the, with the brain? Like, what works the best? One of the things that works best is for there to be questions, like for us to ask the brain or to ask the younger part, for example. So if we've got a traumatized part, um, a, like there can be a moment of frozenness in the past. All trauma, all intrusive memory has 
a seed of a frozen moment in it. So if we if we time travel to that frozen moment, um, so let's say let's just let's just have like an example that would might be of interest to people on the call. When we're little, we have more access. To, we haven't yet been crafted and pushed by our dominant culture into that idea of the brain is just a storage unit. We're still open to the world. We can have all kinds of really interesting and almost sort of magical experiences with the world. And then, like, we go to tell our most beloved people, our parents, wow, I experienced this. And in that moment, often, our parents, with all those more years of being in the dominant culture and experiencing having their right hemisphere and their intuition turned off, they say, don't talk about that. People will think you're crazy, you know, or people say, or parents will say, um, that's stupid. Or pe- parents will say, you're too naive. Or parents will say, you're going to get hurt. Don't tell anybody that you saw auras, you know. There's so many ways that parents will try to shut down a child that's having an expanded experience of the world because they're scared for their child and they want their child to just be the same as everybody else and to belong. But that moment of receiving, of bringing the magic to the people that we love the most at that time, we're in love with our parents when we're tiny people, um, is it's a horrible and often unspoken trauma that shuts children down. They lose their hope. They can't share this most beautiful experience that they've had Instead, they receive what's basically a kind of a withdrawal or a kind of a punishment. And, and so they learn, they like learn to let go of a part of themselves in order to be able to belong to their families. And this is a moment of trauma. So if we were time traveling to this moment of trauma, we would step through time and space and we would go to the little one we would make sure that they're okay. We'd say, little one, is it okay if we time travel to you? And the little one would either say yes or no. If they said no, we'd say, could we come back a different time? If they say yes, then we go to them and we freeze, we freeze mom, we freeze dad, we freeze the teasing siblings. And we're just sitting with that younger part and we say, did you stop breathing? Do you need acknowledgement that you that, you that everything froze within you, did your heart break? And we listen to the answers. If the child says, yes, I stopped breathing, we go, of course. If the child says, yes, my heart is broken, then it's almost like we can gather the pieces of the broken heart and hold them together and acknowledge, you know, because it's a physical pain when we receive that kind of response to having an expanded sense of the world. Is this making any sense? Absolutely, yeah. 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 So mm-hmm. those are the kinds of questions. They're like warmly curious questions that start to create a dialogue with the little one. Because in the brain, those moments are kind of, they kind of go into a crystal, a time crystal, where they're so clear and they're, and they're sort of unchangeable. But as we bring this warm curiosity 
And the little one starts to answer and say, yes, yes, I did. I stopped breathing. I froze. A part of me died in that moment, even, people will say. And, and so then we can be with the part that died. It's, a, it's the world of the world of the brain allows absolute imagination and creativity and healing. So then we're, we're with the little one. And we're, we're like, hello, you know, here you are. Of course you died, if there's a sense that a little part died. And there's this, in the experience of being acknowledged and held and noticed, I mean, the little ones within us are often so surprised that we've come back for them. They're like, what? Somebody is interested in what I experienced? What? They're so surprised. And we, let me say, you need some acknowledgement of how surprising this is. That you've been living for 40, 50 years now <laughs> without anybody bringing warm curiosity. This is a brand new thing. <laughs> and so we, you know, we... we we're just like there in a real way with real dialogue. You know, we're not telling the little one what to do. We're not telling the little one everything's going to be okay. We're just like, oh, what is your experience? Hmm. How do you get past like some of the blockages? Like I know for me even, like probably, I probably have tons of things like that that happened to me as a kid, but I don't remember them. Hmm. So that makes it difficult for you to time travel back to that and, and repair the situation. Of course. Do you know, this is such a, an interesting question for people because so many people don't have childhood memories. Um, do you know whether your parents ever talked to you about what you experienced, believed, thought, saw? Oh, no, that, no. I was told yeah. what to believe. Right, right. I was told to how to identify what I was seeing. Right. I was never asked my opinion. I was just a kid. Yeah. So therefore right. my opinion didn't count. Yes, exactly. So so when we live as children in households and communities where nobody's going, oh, I wonder what's happening for you, then the part of the brain that forms memory doesn't get any nourishment. It kind of starves. And that part of the brain is in the right hemisphere, too. So what we again then are left with is this interesting felt sense of what it was like to be a child. So if we were just based on what you just said, if we were reaching for your child self, we wouldn't be reaching for any specific memories, but we would say, would you like a little acknowledgement that no one was curious? And then we might say, was it lonely? And then you might answer from that, just from the general sense of mm -hmm. what it was like to be a little one. We can work with that general sense and get quite far distances with, with in terms of uh, creating warmth in the brain and opening to intuition and creativity. Hmm. Is that, is that, how's it like? What's it like for me to just start there? It's interesting. So we're just broadening it, broadening the the perspective like it's okay so i can't remember the specific thing but i i know how you know i was treated and, and and i don't know the actual memories but i know that's how it was yeah yeah exactly and begin there yeah uh, by beginning there will that lead to having specific recall of, of memories it, of specific ones sometimes it does another thing that's really interesting to do because um our 
olfactory senses are the ones that go directly to the amygdala without any filtering. So we can start to ask, like you smell diesel fuel, you go, what was my first memory of smelling diesel fuel? Sometimes memories will come back through smell if we start to ask them that way. Oh, here's the smell of peppermint. What's my first, what was my first smell of peppermint? Here's the smell of an orange. What was my first smell of an orange? And there can be very interesting things that happen with memories that come. Sometimes the memories that come will be more from like middle school. Do your memories start in middle school? So my, I have memories all the way back to before I could walk. Far oh. like, like I could, I remember crawling and not being able to reach the sink and things like that. Like I have some very early memories, mm. but the, but but specific memories. It's like very random and fragmented, like the stuff mm -hmm. that I remember. But actual situational interaction memories, I don't necessarily have too many of those. You can do time travel to the fragments, too. You can just, like, be with the little one who can't reach up, you know, who's not tall enough to reach up. You're like, is this a little frustrating? <laughs> big. <laughs> but, yeah, I remember pretty far. Like, I remember, like, my parents even trying to teach me how to, how to walk. Because mm. mm. I didn't want to. I was like, man, crawling is good enough. <laughs> so then you would say to the little one, "Do you would you like to do things on your own time instead of being hurried?" Yeah. Hmm. What, um, what was your experience of starting to have a sense that the world was more expanded than you had been told? How old were you when that started to happen? Um, I would have to say. Three, oh, four, maybe. Um, I, I would say the first memory would be, I think my mom dropped me off at like a preschool or something like that. And I was absolutely terrified. I was like, what the hell is all this shit? Who are all these kids? Who are these people? I don't think I want to be here. I just want to go back to where it was safe. Yeah. And plus my mom bolted. I'm like, is she going to come back or am I here forever? Yeah. Yeah, I remember like those weird thoughts too. Like, huh. yeah, those are very available for time travel. You just go to the, the and stand there with the little guy and say, "Oh, do you need any acknowledgement of how terrifying and lonely this is?" And then you see what he said. And I think too, you know, and it's just and I just realized this. Maybe the reason I was felt like my parents might not come back for me. Maybe I didn't completely trust my yeah. <laughs> trust them yeah. At, yeah. at that point. It was right. a, a lack of trust for some reason. Because mm -hmm. why yeah. else would I feel that way if I didn't trust what they were telling me? Yeah, yeah. And so if we say to the little guy, because he's there, he's in your amygdala, if we say to him, you need some, is it, is it a little bit like you're not sure, you're, you've got some good reasons not to be sure that your mommy will come back. Hmm. I wonder why that is. I wonder if she must have, if there's an incident where I needed her and maybe she forgot about me or something. Is that something your mom would do? My mother did that. 
I don't think she would have done it on purpose, but uh-huh. just in her overwhelm or yeah, or, or mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what could have happened, but something must have happened so, where I felt like she had forgotten. Yes, and forgotten my existence or, or ignored me, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Where I felt like she wasn't listening to me, it wasn't, or maybe I felt like she didn't, wasn't concerned about my needs. Yeah. Also, if there was any early medical treatment, they used to take the babies away from the moms, mm-hmm. and there would be separation, and then the baby would definitely not be sure the mom was gonna be able to come back. Right. Yeah. And then there's other times like I remember like her being there, like like you mentioned like the medical situation. Like I remember like I had surgery. I guess I was about seven years old. But but she stayed there with me the whole time. Like she slept, you know, in the hospital. Uh-huh. So there were times when she was there for me too. Yeah. You know? yeah. So it was both. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to be able to acknowledge the complexity, and that our parents are and were whole people. <laughs> sometimes responsive, sometimes completely distracted. Hmm. So, with the in, in your book, like how does your book handle these situations? Like, I mean, it looks like you you you, you discuss the topics of you know how the brain is working and why these situations occur, and it looks like you're offering some solutions with through guided meditations. Um, can you give me a little bit of overview of how you know how the book is laid out and what it. Uh, my listeners can expect if they read it? Yeah. The first book, the um, Your Resonant Self the gui- with Guided Meditations, both books have guided meditations. But the first book is, uh, is about um, the journey of self-compassion because we often grow up and we're not very kind to ourselves. And so the first, the first book takes you through all the different ways that the brain can be self-compassionate and all the different ways that trauma reroutes the brain, stopping us from being self-compassionate. I always like to say, if your brain is being cruel to you, which is the you know critical self-witness, if your brain is being cruel to you, it's not truth, it's trauma. And, and when we start to understand the profound impact of trauma and the profound impact of being left completely alone, then what happens is that we begin to grow self-compassion. And so the book is kind of step-by-step, like what do we need to know about the brain? And what do we need to know about what's supposed to happen if we're accompanied? And what do we need to know about accompanying ourselves in the places where we're not accompanied? And so it's got a lot about time travel. And it's, uh, and so that's, that's book one. Mm-hmm. And then I was traveling around the world before the pandemic, and teaching this material, and many people would be like, yes, I understand, but it would go against my integrity to be kind to myself. Mm-hmm. It, yes, you have a puzzled look on your face, and that was what happened for me, too. I was so puzzled. Why would people have, why would it be against our integrity for us to not, to be kind to ourselves? And I always believed that brains make sense. So I kind of went to the brains, and I was like, Okay, brains, (laughs) brains of my clients, brains of the people I meet in the world. 
if you were to say, take this as a, as a promise you're making to yourself. I, Sarah, solemnly swear to my essential self that I will be cruel to Sarah in order to, and then see what happens. What's the in order to? Why are you being cruel to Sarah? In order to be in integrity with what? With, with the way my mother saw me so that I can belong to her in order to uh, be in integrity with my father because he's so alone and I don't want him to be alone. He sees himself in a cruel way. If I see myself in a cruel way, I'll accompany him and I won't leave him and he'll have somebody with him. There's so much love in these contracts. So book two is all about all of the different kinds of contracts that we make that prevent us from having a forward flow in our life. Like, for example, for a little one who lived through that, that imaginary situation that I was talking about where you have a sense, you have like an experience of, um, of, of seeing the divinity in all creation, or you see auras, or you see, you see, you see beautiful shapes in the sky, or you, see, you know, or you have this perception, this, this, multi-layered perception of reality and you take it to your parent and your parent says no 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 then one of the things that children can do is make a promise to themselves to close that door to close the door to magic to close the door to expanded senses of reality and they so they make this contract with themselves i sarah solemnly swear to my essential self that i will no longer believe in anything except the solidness of what's here right now, and I will not talk about it, in order to manage my father's panic, in order to, to belong to my family. And, and then the last part of the contract is, no matter the cost to myself. And so, and so we turn away from, from the whole expanded world of reality, that's here, the way that, in a way, the way that the planet is an entity, the way that nature breathes and is a wholeness, the way that we actually belong, the way that we belong to the trees, the way that we are an integrated part of our ecosystem. We turn away from that in order to make our parents be calm and to make sure they're okay, because they panic when their little kids see expanded reality and so then we get to come back to this contract as adults we get to say do you want that you still want this contract to close the door on what you can actually perceive and people would be like oh no that was a very good contract when i was small but i don't need that contract anymore now now i want to be able to perceive the world i want to be able to breathe with the planet and so if they want to breathe with the planet, then they say, Sarah, I release you from this vow. I revoke this contract to turn away from the magic of the world. And instead, I give you my blessing to breathe with. So that's an example of a way in which a child, out of their own integrity, tries to turn away from a part of themselves. Is this making sense? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I've never really put much thought into 
some of the th- promises that I've made to myself growing up and how they've affected me and how maybe I've never gone back to examine whether those promises to myself are even necessary, even ones that I've forgotten about that, you know, from, from, from early childhood. Yes. Um, it really makes me think, um, you know, um, and, and that division too. Like, like, like I know for me, like I'm kind of like a, I'm a very contradictory type of person. You know, I'm a, I love all the spiritual things and magic and the occult and all the mysteries of life. And then there's like this other side of me, which I, you know, obviously learned from my father, which is um, my way of dealing with things. Like it's just something gets in my way. I'm just going to keep moving forward and just go right over top, whatever it is, and just keep on going. And... And I think that's something I learned from my dad. And I think it's also a promise I've made to myself, too, that, that no matter what, I'm just not going to quit. Wow. Wow. It's like, a, it's like embodied determination. Mm-hmm. But with that comes this hard rigidness, too. Oh, yeah. Which, yeah. which kind of closes off some of that intuitive part. Oh, interesting. So then what you'd want to do is to be able to do a contract release that keeps the determination but lets you have a softness with it. So then you'd, we'd say, so we're guessing that your contract might be, I solemnly swear to my essential self that I will keep going no matter what, no matter how much it hurts me, no matter how much it hurts people I love, I will not stop. I will be unstoppable. Am I doing okay so far on the words? hmm in order to, what's your in order to? Um, it would be in order to be a more sensitive, caring person and not that's, shut myself off from other people. Yeah. yeah, that's the release. But what was the original contract? Your original contract to be unstoppable. Is it like so that I can be with my dad? I'll be unstoppable in order mm. to be. I think it was more survival based. Oh. Yeah, I think it was more of a primitive survival. Oh. I will be unstoppable in order to survive. Yeah. Uh No matter the cost. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think as a result of that, someone that has made me shut off to some other people's feelings and needs and sensitivities. Like, I'll look at people like, why are you being so sensitive? Just, Just crush over top of it. Keep going. Rather than... You know, because that's the way I'm pro- I've programmed myself to be that way. Yeah. So now we'll talk to your essential self and we'll say, essential self of Gary, do you want to keep this? Is this a good vow? All right. I, I mean, some of it works for me. And, and some of it um, messes me up because it prevents me from relating to other people who are not thinking the same way. Mm. And I'm more sensitive to things that I might not be sensitive to because mm. I see an obstacle. I'm just going to keep on going where other people see an obstacle and they're like, oh, this is in my way. It's making me feel this way. It's making me feel that way. You know, and I, then that's where I've become sort of insensitive to other people's feelings because I'm just like, hey, you just keep going. Yeah, but it's not yeah. that well, it's not that black and white for everybody like it is for me. Right, right. So then, so it sounds like your essential self wants to say, little Gary who made this contract, I release you from this vow. 
Is that is that true? Does he want to say that? I don't think he wants to be released from that vow. I think my little self wants the vow to be amended. Oh, to, okay. To, I amend this. To, uh, to amend the vow to just be a part of survival, but mm-hmm. not necessarily be a part of my relationships with other people. Very nice. Keep the survival and allow that softness and relationality and connection. Mm-hmm. Mm. How does your body do? That's what we always ask. Because the body is the home of intuition, the home of the change. What is your, how does your body feel as we do this? Um, I don't know, maybe a little mushy. <laughs> can't really like think the, of it. The softness comes in a little bit? Not so, oh. not so much in my heart, though. Like More down here in my gut. Uh-huh. You know? And then I think that's where I'm sort of harder. Is in my like uh-huh. I think my heart's usually pretty open, but my gut is very instinctive and hard and aggressive. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if that's typical. Maybe it's just because I'm a male, or you know. What does it feel as you say that? I imagine a line of men, like your father, your grandfather, your great grandfather, your great great grandfather, moving through the world with this unstoppable energy. Does that feel true? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, then there's definitely. So then there's a family line. There can even be contracts to the family line. I solemnly swear to my line of men that I will not stop in order to be a part of this line of men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Like all the men in my family are that way. Like, mm-hmm. you know, just they just don't give up. Period. There's something really delightful about the not giving up there's something kind of inspiring about that yeah and i think you know that i mean it's weird though like my grandfather was a fearless man like he came here as a child from italy running from war and stuff like that my father was like the opposite i mean he had the same like i don't give up but he didn't give up because he was afraid oh you know where I don't want to be that way because I'm afraid. I want to be this way because I'm adventurous. Mm-hmm. I'm more about the adventure. I don't want to, like my dad, like he grew up and lived in the same town his entire life for 85 years, you know. And that's not the type of not giving up I want. I want mm-hmm. to be able to do what I want, experience the world. And I have done that. I definitely have moved out of that type of thinking. But I guess there's different methods of it, too. You know, there's, there's, there's the hucker down and don't give up. And then there's the go out and fight <laughs> and not give up. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you're feeling this commonality with different different kind of flavors. Yeah. Different flavors of unstoppability. What are some of the common obstacles that that you find that most people have? Well, the most, the biggest obstacle is that we haven't been accompanied, that we haven't, that we haven't had someone walking beside us that's interested in who we are and what we long for and what we love. And that 
when we don't have anybody with us, we uh, we become rigid. We become rigid in response to not having anybody with us. And those rigidities are really what people run into. Those are those are the blocks. The the commonality of all the rigidities is in some way that people have alarmed aloneness. So in the world, we often talk about fight or flight. People mm-hmm. are in fight or flight. And when we say that, we're not acknowledging that humans are exquisitely social. So if we say fight, flight, fight, flight, that implies that the only ways that we get upset are to be angry or to be afraid. And being alone and having an alarm about being alone and missing people, like being a baby and having our mom go away, that's alarmed aloneness. A little bit of it is fear, a little bit of it might be anger, but there's an essential missing of the other person that's an alarm state. You know, if you lose your, if your parent and you lose your child, you're afraid for what could happen to them, you're afraid, you're angry that they that they wandered off, but there's this core of like, will I lose my baby forever? And that's a different kind of anxiety that's that I like to call alarmed aloneness. So I like to say, fight, flight, alarmed aloneness. And the alarmed aloneness experiences are the experiences that create rigidities and blocks in people. So, so for example, I was working with somebody who was always late. And, um, and we started to work, and I was like, okay, well, maybe you have a contract. To always be late. Maybe there's a very good reason that you're always late. She said, oh, I remember when I was a teenager, I was going to a psychiatrist who who was uh, someone who was manipulative and was uh, making a, like, trying to make the child be something that she was not. And, and, and she remembered making the contract, I will never do what anybody wants me to do again. I will never be on time again. <laughs> and so there she was. She'd found that seed of a moment when, and this is what's important, not only was she being manipulated, manipulated, there she was alone in a room with an adult that was doing something to her. And 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 so, you know. When she realized that, and she went and she was like accompanying her younger self and said, you know, this you're too alone in this moment. You're too alone with a powerful person that's using their power against you. I'm with you. Let's release this contract. We don't need it now. We needed it then. We don't need it now. And she let go of that contract, and she could then have more choice about being on time. But before she released the contract, she had to be late. It was a matter of life or death. It was a way to keep herself free from manipulation. Hmm. Is this making sense? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I sort of have the same contract with myself. Not so much about being late, <gasps> but but with authority. Oh, not to As a kid, I hated going to school. Oh. Absolutely couldn't. St- it, it felt like prison to me. And being oh. told what to do and where I had to be and how much time I had between like the whole the whole thing just I, I absolutely despised it and um, and I must have made a contract with myself that I'm not not going to listen to authority 
And I'm still like that. I'm still uh-huh. very much like that. I have so much trouble um, doing what other people tell me to do. You know, mm. you told me to do something. It's like, no, I'm not doing it. Just because you told me to do it, now I'm not going to do it. So, so then we can. It sounds like we have a good, a good sense of what the uh, the, the promise is. I promised myself I will never do what anyone wants me to do again. Now that I, once I'm a grown up, I will never do what anyone wants me to do again. Right. And then what's that in order to? Hmm? What the words? What would the words of your in order to be? I won't do what anybody wants me to do in order to. Have to be free. In order to be free. Do what I want. To, and to do what yeah. I want. Yeah. And, and, and here also it feels like there might be a flavor of survival. That you were being sort of killed or having the life crushed out of you. In school, yeah. Early on, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know. I just, I just was not cut out for it. You know, I, I, I didn't really know how to get along with other kids. You know, the the the, the teachers. Um, you know, there were things I couldn't do as a kid. The teachers would just, you know, beat me up for those type of things rather than right. trying to help me fix them or figure out what was wrong. Right. You know, so right. I was constantly being put down because I couldn't do certain things. Right. Um, so the whole the whole experience was just awful. What happens if we say I will not do? what anybody else wants me to do in order to survive, in order to continue to exist. Mm-hmm. Does that feel even more true than freedom, or does freedom feel more true? It's still like freedom. Freedom. In order to have freedom. I, I felt no. like such a prisoner. Uh-huh. uh-huh. I felt like a no, prisoner. My- I felt like a slave. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And even like now, like, like work sometimes will feel that way to me. And I always get I always get resentful towards my employers. So then, here you are, this little guy with this love of freedom, who's having to go into school and be a slave and be a prisoner. What happens if you visit him? Is he okay with him that you would visit him? Oh yeah, yeah, he'd be fine. Yeah, I, I commend him for being. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> in a way. Yeah. Even yeah. though like it makes life difficult, you know? Mm-hmm. But I still think like, like that's a part of myself too that I wouldn't really willingly give up anyway. Would you amend it? Probably not. Mm, okay. Probably not. I've made it this far. Yeah, yeah. Hating yeah. authority and fighting authority. Mm-hmm. I mean my podcast is sort of about all that. You know, yeah. It's like, d- don't listen to what they told you because it was wrong. Yeah. Listen to yourself. Yeah. So here's the thing. Here's the cost that I want to name. Is that what if what you want is the same as what somebody tells you to do? And then you don't get to do what you want. Because the contract is so powerful. Hmm. Well, then I would have to change it. Just a little amendment. Yeah. I will not do what anyone else tells me to do unless I want it to. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mm. That would work. Yeah. But it, and I also find it strange, like this is another thing too that prevents me from relating to people is I see people being obedient and I don't understand it. No. I'm like, why do you want to not be true to yourself and do what's going to make you happy? Why would you rather do what other people are going to tell you to do? But then I guess those people probably have a contract with themselves is that I'm going to do what I'm told in order to survive. Yes, I think that's so true. And, of course, we know that so many people are, you know, so threatened. I mean, that, that they receive physical threats of physical harm or of exclusion that are so powerful that they, that of course they do, of course they do what they're told in order to survive. Hmm. See, I never thought of that even until now. Say that again? I never thought of it from that perspective until now. Yeah. I yeah. always just kind of looked at them as weak. Oh, yeah, yeah. As we start to step, as we start to step into this area of starting to see the contract, it's it's such an interesting thing for me. I have this perception sometimes of of walking through the world and seeing that people are it's almost like that our that our contracts are kind of spider webs that wrap around us and keep us in certain positions, keep us defensive, keep us offensive, keep us. Um, blinded from each other. I have a sense sometimes of, of being able to perceive the the ways that people are bound by by what they have to do to survive. Hmm. For, for people to change these things that you know or even to examine them um Obviously, there has to be a certain amount of willingness to reach that point where you want to examine these contracts and become willing to amend them or change them or to get rid of them completely. Yeah. Um, so, so some of that means that, that, that people have to feel a certain amount of pain until they're willing. Yeah, or, uh, I mean, I think most people are in pain. Um so, um, I think sometimes like a shaft of light, like a sense of hope has to suddenly break through. I think that's kind of what happened to me with with my son and wanting to hug him. I was in the pain. I was in the pain. I was in the pain. But being in the pain didn't change me. Being given a shaft of hope was what changed me. So sometimes I think like that it's almost in ways a matter of grace. Like, what podcast did we listen to today? Was there somebody talking like this? Did it give us an aha moment when we went, oh, contracts. Oh, I have contracts with myself. And a gamma wave went through the brain and changed it. You know, but these are, it's, it's, there's something about grace. Hmm. So, Everybody has these contracts with themselves. Do we ever stop making these contracts with ourselves at any age, or do we continue to do this until we die? Well, I think most of us continue to do it till we die. But, um, but 
But as we learn that they exist, we start to see that a different that something different is possible. And that different thing is accompaniment. So that in a difficult moment, like let's say we get to imagine you being in your next difficult moment with a with somebody in authority. Mm-hmm. And the somebody in authority says, you're not doing this and you're supposed to be doing that. And if you don't do this, then this is going to happen. And, you know, all of that force and threat. And, um, and, and that we imagine that you remember yourself in this moment. That you remember yourself going, hmm, in this moment. And that that self comes and stands right with you. And you're totally a company you don't have to be hard you don't have to go into that that toughness that you carry down here you get to just be yourself in that moment because you're supported you have the powerful you with you going let's think about what do we want what do we want what do we want is anything about what this person is saying something we want or have we just really gotten to a point where this is not somebody we want to be working with anymore, in which case, yeah, no more. But is there something here that we want? And then that there gets to be that warm curiosity, that inquiry, a little bit of softness, because you're not alone. Is this making any sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I find now when I make a promise to myself is I put a time limit on it or a goal at the end. That's nice. You know, like I'll, I'll promise myself, like I'll do this, this, and this until I achieve this, mm. or until this certain period of my life passes. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you ever? Yeah, that's consider? beautiful. I mean, that sounds very. It sounds very supportive. Does it feel supportive that you're? It makes of... sense. I don't know if it yeah. feels supportive, but it, like it makes sense to me because. Mm-hmm. Especially at my age, you know, as I'm getting older, I I know that 10, 15 years from now, I'm not going to be able to do what I'm doing now. So so I can't keep those promises then. Right. You know, right. I, I'm, I'm going to have to adapt. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even like now, like I, have, I can't do what I was doing in my 20s. <laughs> I try sometimes, but I usually get injured. I was at the ballet. Uh, it was a modern ballet, and the dancers—they just were—they were so young, <laughs> and they were so strong. And I was like, "Where is my twenty-year-old body?" <laughs> <laughs> right, and that's probably a mistake that a lot of us make too: is we don't adapt to age. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Hmm. Um, so in the, in your second book, like what are some of the exercises, like when you give out the meditations, can you describe what some of these meditations are like? Yeah, yeah. So for an example of one of the meditations would be, um, uh, to, to start with breathing, to notice your breath, to let your breath go in and out. And then if you're willing to, to start to notice where your attention goes, to invite your attention to stay with where, wherever the alive place of your breath is. And then as your attention wanders, 
in many traditional meditation exercises, they say, just bring your attention back to your breath, bring your attention back to your breath, bring your attention back to your breath. And what I like to do is to pause for a little moment and go, thank you, attention. You know, thank you for bringing my focus to the pain in my back. Do you really want me to fix that? You want me to do something about that? Just for this moment, are you willing to come back to my breath? Or thank you, attention, for thinking about the shopping list for tonight's dinner. I'm very grateful. Are you willing, just for this moment, in service of our well-being, to come back to the breath? So there are those kinds of very basic meditations where we're inviting the attention, but we're acknowledging kind of that it has things, ways that it's trying to take care of us. Not that it's wrong for thinking about the shopping list. And so, so in every way, this work tries to dismantle the implication that people are wrong for doing what they're doing. Instead, and that parts of us are wrong for doing what they're doing. And instead to move into a relationship of, of warm inquiry, like, I imagine you're trying to help me. What are, how are you helping me in this moment? Like, here's, here's a self-sabotaging behavior. How is this self-sabotaging behavior helping me in this moment? And so the, the meditations are, are, are inquiries into and modelings of how to talk to different parts of ourself in a way that respects them. That's a big part of the meditations. Hmm. Interesting. Um, th- there's so much there to unpack. I mean, I mean, this is obviously a lifetime type of process, examining some of these contracts that we sell, have in ourselves. I, I would imagine that. I mean, throughout my lifetime, there must be millions of these things. It's a lot. Yeah, and just and and we before we start thinking of them as contracts, we just think that they're character flaws or unexplained behavioral patterns, or um, or that, that that there's something wrong with us, or that there's something wrong with the world, or that um, or um, or that this is just how we are. Like this is just our personality. This is just my personality. I'm um, I'm opposed to authority on principle. That's just my personality. And then we start to look at the contracts and go, oh, my personality is expansive, fluid, encompassing, welcoming, um, and and skeptical, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is really different, right? Then. This is just the way I am. I am opposed to authority. Instead, it's more. It's like it's more expanded. Hmm. You you made me remember something too. Like you mentioned the the being late thing. That used to be part of my thing with authority. Um, however, I had a job I, for for a, for a long time at the time. I was in my twenties, and my boss that I worked for, he taught me a lot. You know. Um, and I would always be late for that job. And like one day he's like, well, why do you do that? Why, why are you always late? I'm like, oh, I don't know, you know? And, um, he goes, look, 
you guys are coming to work on time. And I, and I think at, at that moment, though, I thought about it. And I said, you know what? This guy has really taught me a lot. He, he's done more for me than I've probably done for him. And then I started going to work on time and made that another promise to myself that I'm never going to be late for work. You know, I made it. So now, ever since then, I'm never late. Uh-huh. Uh, does it feel good? Or is, do you need more flexibility? No, it That's feels awesome. good. I'm just responsible oh, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. That's always our question, you know. It's like, because we can make good promises that don't have a cost that feel good. But if something doesn't feel good, then it's okay to let it go. Hmm. Interesting. There's just things I've never, haven't thought about in ages. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. Um, so before we wrap this up, where is the best place for my listeners to find you and find your books? And do you have like a website or anything too? Yeah, I have a website, sarahpayton.com. And, um, and the website has the free downloads of all the meditations. So you can just get on the website and get the meditations too. Um, but there's classes and, and groups and experiences and recordings all kinds of things. The books are um, available from any bookstore if you like to support brick and mortar bookstores by ordering, or you can order them on all the major book selling sites. Mm-hmm. You can order them on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. If you like independent bookstores, you can order from Powell's.com in Portland, Oregon, which is a wonderful <laughs> independent bookstore that fills a whole city block. I love Powell's. So those are those are options for finding me and finding my work and. On YouTube, you can Google me and then, or YouTube me or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the verb would be to find, you know, this podcast and more podcasts. That, or I just talk about this stuff, about the impact of trauma and how we heal and how we become more expansive and welcoming for the, for the world beyond the world of what, that we see. Fantastic. Well, I'll put those links in the notes of this episode so my listeners can check out your website, buy your books, download the meditations. Uh, I think that's really cool that you had them up there for free and not charging people for them. And uh, it was a pleasure talking with you, and I will do this again. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Just hang on for one moment. I just have to play the outro. Amazon and it will change your life.